Well, good morning, church. My name is Robbie, and I'm one of the pastors here. Antioch kids and your teachers, you can be dismissed to go to your classes. You are sent. So this morning, we're going to continue in our Advent sermon series we've been calling The Mothers of Jesus, where we're looking at the stories of some of the women named in the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And today's sermon is on Ruth, titled Ordinary God. So the past two Sundays, we have looked at the story of Rahab and the story of Bathsheba. Two stories full of action, with spies hiding out in enemy territory, slipping out through windows, kings having affairs and covering it up with murder. And then we come to the book of Ruth, where comparatively little happens. The story almost seems boring. So as the pastor with the most dynamic personality of the four, (laughs) I felt obligated to choose this story so that I could bring the energy that it sorely needs. So all joking aside, this story does have significance to me. My youngest daughter, as you might know, is named Naomi. And my eldest daughter, Evelyn, her middle name is Ruth. And my mother's middle name is also Ruth. So I hope you will find, as I did, that this story has great richness in spite of its lack of action. So if you're able, to please stand with me for the reading of God's word? So for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all four chapters of Ruth. We're going to read chapter 1, verse 15 through 19, which I think is the crux of the whole story. And Naomi said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So as I mentioned, the title of the sermon is Ordinary God, and the three points this morning are the courageous obedience of ordinary Ruth, the ordinary obedience of ordinary Naomi, and God is at work in and with the ordinary. So you may be noticing a theme already. The story of Ruth goes like this. An Israelite woman named Naomi moves to the foreign land of Moab with her husband and her two sons because of a famine in the land of Israel. Her sons marry Moabite women, and then her husband and two sons pass away and leave Naomi widowed along with her foreign daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi moves back to Israel, and Ruth comes with her, And Ruth scrapes out a living for her and Naomi by following the harvesters in the barley fields and gathering what they drop behind them. A relative of Naomi named Boaz happens to own these fields and takes notice of Ruth and ends up marrying her. 
And they have a son who becomes the grandfather of David, the future king of Israel. So that's it. There's no dreams or visions, no miraculous interventions. The love story between Ruth and Boaz isn't even that romantic. And for most of the book, Ruth doesn't even do anything other than what she's told or asked to do. So why does ordinary Ruth end up in the genealogy of Jesus? I'm going to start to answer that question with an illustration from, of course, the Avengers movie series. You're welcome, Brad. So in the Captain America movie, we are introduced towards the beginning at Army Boot Camp to a scrawny, weak, very ordinary Steve Rogers. So he and other wannabe soldiers are being observed for selection for a special mission. The strongest, meanest-looking soldier in the group seems destined to be chosen until the final test. The instructor lobs a fake grenade into the group of soldiers and then observes what happens. All of the soldiers scatter like roaches when you click on the light, taking cover behind whatever they can find, just like you and I would likely do. All of the soldiers, except for one. Scrawny Steve Rogers runs to the grenade and falls on it, shielding the others from the explosion and waiting for the blast that will end his life. So because of this selfless bravery, he is selected for the mission. Now I know that this is a fictitious Hollywood example, but it has its roots in reality. A brief internet search gave me dozens of results of soldiers who had earned the Congressional Medal of Honor for falling on a grenade to save their comrades and dying in the act. So what is it about this scene, this act, that is so powerful and captivating? It's a shock to our sense of reality, isn't it? Everything in our experience tells us to run away from a grenade. To run to the grenade and jump on it defies all logic and stuns us with its bravery. It points to deeper truths and a greater sense of reality. It screams out that there's more to this life than what we see. So that's what this story of Ruth should do for us, and I hope it will do this morning. And it's why she is included in the genealogy of Jesus. Her decision to follow Naomi back to Israel was incredibly courageous and defies logic in our sense of reality. So let's look again at chapter 1. Then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? 
Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, why would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So let's look at the two choices before our widowed Ruth. Option number one, she could stay in Moab, go back to her parents, remarry, Hopefully have children and continue on with life as she know it, knows it. This option seems pretty straightforward. Or option two, go with Naomi back to Israel. This one is a little more complicated. Without a husband or father-in-law to protect and provide for her, her life in Israel with Naomi would be a dead end. She would be as powerless and vulnerable as a woman could be. She would be a poverty-stricken immigrant with no rights, no power, and limited marriage prospects who would be reduced to a life of begging. This wasn't just what would probably happen. This is what did happen when she and Naomi arrived back in Bethlehem. In order for her and Naomi to eat, she follows behind the harvesters in the barley fields, and gathers leftover grain. Now, I've never had to subsist upon just grain, and I hope I never will, but it's a long way from a tasty, well-balanced diet. So I'm a cereal lover, so I could probably handle this better than most. But this wasn't Raisin Bran Crunch or Frosted Mini Wheats. I imagine it would be like having grape nuts. Every single day. Nothing but grape nuts. So grape nuts are fine when you mix them with a sweeter cereal or you dump sugar on them. Or, and when you have them with some milk. But I don't know anyone who has ever said, hmm, I could really go for a dry bowl of grape nuts right about now. The subsistence part of the diet wasn't the worst part. Because she was a foreign woman with no man to provide protection, she would be vulnerable day in and day out to physical and sexual assault. So we see this in chapter 2, verse 9. Boaz tells Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And Naomi repeats the warning in chapter 2, verse 22. It is good, my daughter, that you go out 
with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So the choice is before Ruth. Go back to her family and Moab. Remarry and carry on with life with a father and or a husband to protect and provide. Or follow Naomi and be a destitute widow, vulnerable to assault, who eats only dry grape nuts. Given that simple choice, I know which one I would choose, no matter how much I like cereal. I'm staying in Moab. But Ruth sees something different, something greater. She jumps on the grenade, so to speak, and chooses to follow Naomi to that life of hardship. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and therefore will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Her love for Naomi and for this God who is foreign to her overcome her desire for a more comfortable, stable life. And she follows Naomi back to Bethlehem. Her sister-in-law Orpah also loves Naomi and says she wants to come, but at the moment of decision turns back to her old life and to her gods. Ruth acts on her belief and does not turn back. And this courageous act of faith is why we know the story of a widowed woman from Moab and why she is listed as a great-great-grandmother to God in the flesh. The question I've kept coming back to and thinking about and preparing for this sermon is why? What would cause Ruth to take this beautiful leap of faith that makes no earthly sense? She was on her home turf, among her own people, and her own gods. There would have been no synagogue for her to attend to hear the scriptures taught. No Jewish temple to gaze at and wonder. Her own country of Moab had food and was politically stable, while the nation of Israel had no food and was in political disarray. If Ruth was to look around her, it certainly would seem to her like the Moabite gods were more powerful than the God of Israel. What would she have seen and experienced that would pull her away to Israel and their God? As I thought about it, the only answer I could come up with was this. The ordinary obedience of Naomi in pursuing intentional gospel relationship. This is my second point this morning. The ordinary obedience of ordinary Naomi. So if you're new to Antioch, or just visiting, or if you've been here a while, but you've been living under a rock, I should say to you that intentional gospel relationships are central to what Antioch is about. Intentional gospel relationships are the means to the end, the how of why we exist. Antioch's declaration is, somebody tell me. Yes. We pursue intentional gospel relationships to display Christ's glory among the nations. We pursue these relationships because they don't just happen 
on their own. These relationships must be intentional because they do not take on the form of the gospel on their own. They take thought, care, and work to live out. But as the gospel takes root in us and transforms us, it also can and must transform the way we relate to those in this church community and those we are in relationship with who are unbelievers. The fact is, the way that we relate to others is always saying something. It is always displaying something. The way we relate to one another speaks volumes about us and what is important to us. And at Antioch, we desire that what is spoken by our relationships is that our lives are transformed by a gracious God. The result of this relationship speech, hopefully, is that the glory of God, the glory of Christ, is on display to all who are around us, that the nations may see and know our God. And I believe this is exactly what happened with Naomi and Ruth. It's how an ordinary Jewish housewife could bring about the conversion of a foreign Moabite woman and move her to leave her home and her gods. I don't know exactly what this looked like for Ruth and Naomi. The text doesn't say. But it likely wasn't anything spectacular. It likely happened in the mundane, ordinary lives that that they both led. It might have looked like Naomi expressing interest in Ruth and her culture, her upbringing, her story. Naomi being quick to listen and slow to anger. Or weeping with Ruth over her childlessness. Or telling Ruth the stories of what God had done for her and for her people. Apologizing and asking for forgiveness when she did something to hurt Ruth. A thousand different little things. A thousand small moments. Mostly insignificant by themselves, but when added together, forming a beautiful picture of a woman transformed by her God. A picture that proved irresistible to Ruth and led her to forsake all she knew and follow Naomi and her God in spite of what it would cost her. So this is what we are called to, church. Don't despise the ordinary parts of your lives. Most of our lives are no more exciting than Naomi's or Ruth's. We go to work, we raise our kids, we participate in our community. A thousand mundane interactions. It's easy to think that the mundane things in our lives aren't spiritual. That the real work of the gospel happens overseas on the mission fields. Or it's the work of gifted evangelists who can turn any casual conversation into a gospel opportunity. Or... We think that a gospel relationship is one where we manipulate our interactions with unbelievers so that we have an opportunity to share the gospel. There is a time and place to share the gospel, but if the message of grace for sinners doesn't match up with the grace we show in our daily lives, we undermine the good news we are trying to share. The majority of people I know who have come to faith do so not because of a clever gospel presentation. 
lost my place. But because of the transformed lives of the believers they are in a relationship with. Sure, be faithful to share the good news of the gospel when the opportunity comes. But know that the mundane interactions you have speak with power as well. The story of Ruth shows us that God is at work in the ordinary of life. Our ordinary, often boring lives matter. So parents in the room, this word is for you. Your time spent managing bickering kids, cleaning up their messes, driving them to school and to practice, it matters. Professionals, this word is for you. Your time spent in mindless meetings around the water cooler, in performance reviews, it matters. Retirees, this word is for you. Your time watching the grandkids or caring for your spouse with failing health or walking through difficulties with your grown children, it matters. Anytime our lives give us the opportunity to be in relationship with someone else, be that our children, our spouse, co-worker, friend, or caregiver, it is an opportunity to transform and be transformed by the gospel. So love those around you and let them see you love your God. Be intentional about what you display in these interactions. Do it in the good times and the bad times, when it feels good and when it hurts. Pursue intentional gospel relationships and do not despair because God is at work in and with the ordinary. This is my last point this morning, that God is at work in and with the ordinary. While this book of the Bible is named after Ruth, the story is just as much about Naomi and her journey of faith. So when Ruth is having her courageous moment of faith in chapter 1, Naomi is in despair. She arrives back to Bethlehem and tells her old friends to change her name from Naomi which means sweet, Tamara, which means bitter. As far as she can tell, her ordinary life is a failure. She is widowed with no prospect of finding a husband, has no sons to take care of her, and she returns to Bethlehem with nothing but a foreign daughter-in-law, and her family lineage is about to be ended forever. So that's the tricky part about our ordinary, mundane lives, that life is often hard and it often seems hopeless. Now we press on day after day doing the best we can, but things often don't seem to go the way that we want them to. Children wander far from God. We lose jobs we love. Friends we care for deeply move away or worse, betray us. Parents grow old and frail and pass away. I could go on and on. Where Naomi finds herself in the dark of mundane despair, we often find ourselves. Before we know it, we begin to lose hope. These grand gospel truths that we preach begin to dim in our minds, and we begin to wonder what it's all for. If God has abandoned us and chosen to use those more faithful, more gifted. So life has been, over the past few years, pretty hard for my family and I. 
uh, as I'm sure it has been for many of you. Health problems for Stephanie and I, health concerns for the girls, for our parents, worries over job security, being stuck out of the country for weeks on end, not once, but twice, pastoring through difficult seasons in the church. I could go on, but the point isn't to garner sympathy. I know life has been even harder for many of you. The point is that this message this morning is for myself, as much or more as it is for you. God is always at work, even in the ordinary drudgery of life. Bitter hardship, though, was not the last word for Naomi, and it is not the last word for us. As the book of Ruth ends, Naomi is holding a baby, her grandson, The women she had bemoaned her bitterness to gather around her. Chapter 4 says, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. God was at work in Naomi's darkness, and her hope was at last fulfilled. So each year at Advent... We find ourselves waiting again in the darkness for our hope to be fulfilled. For 400 years after the prophecies of Malachi in the Old Testament, the people of Israel waited in silence, aching, ordinary, mundane silence, full of hope unrealized, waiting on the Messiah. Then finally, finally, The wait was over, and God himself entered the ordinary, born to a poor couple in a barn. Once again, we find a woman holding a baby, hope fulfilled. Church, our Messiah has come. He is here. He came in the ordinary and to the ordinary. And he died for us ordinary people so that we may have hope of eternal life. He came as an assurance that he is at work in the darkness and we are never without hope. As a reminder of that hope, he's left us two ordinary symbols, bread and wine, flesh and blood, God with us in the ordinary. For on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance, remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant of the shedding of my blood. 
drink this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The church this morning, we proclaim that God is here in the ordinary, and we are not without hope. So our tradition here at Antioch is to come down the center aisle and exit to the outside, tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. There's also gluten-free communion over here on our left. For those of you who are baptized believers, we invite you to come and partake. For those of you who are not baptized believers, this meal is not for you. It's just a symbol that is meaningless without the reality. So we invite you to come and take Jesus this morning. There'll be pastors in the back who'd love to hear about your needs and to pray for you. And when you're ready, please come forward. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you did not come to the rich, to the perfect, to those who live exciting, adventurous lives on the edge. But you came in the ordinary, and you came to the ordinary, ordinary people like us. Father, we thank you that you, you came into the darkness as a great light. And Father, you are a great light in our darkness, and you have not left us without hope. So Father, as we come this morning, would you fill us with that hope? And Father, would you bring us life anew? Father, we thank you and we praise you. We ask all in Jesus' name. Amen.